I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. I'm a member of the leadership team, and I so miss seeing all of you in worship. I trust and hope that all of you are healthy and safe, and I look forward to the time when we can be together on Sunday mornings and not necessarily virtually. I have this morning's readings. They're from the book of Hosea. First, we're going to do chapter 1, verses 2 to 11, and then we're going to skip to chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 1. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Then the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have pity on the house of Israel or forgive them. But I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned Luruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can be neither measured nor numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. 
The people of Judah and the people of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall take possession of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 11 When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offered incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities, it consumes their oracle priests, and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How long, O Lord? It's this prayer. It's a prayer that we are all praying these days. Whether or not we're, we're praying it with our lips or, or, or it's kind of pulsating out of our heart. It's, this, it's the prayer of 2020. As it seems like time just kind of stands still these days. I mean, what day is it even? <laughs> what day is it? Are we still in March? And then beyond that, we, we turn on the news and ask, how long, oh Lord? How long? When will the pain end? When will change come? When will, will justice be achieved? How long, oh Lord? And so this summer, we thought... That, that we would hang on this prayer together during this season. As time stands still, we thought we would listen, we would lean into the Old Testament prophets from whence this prayer came. And the prophets, we will, we will learn together, are, are not child's play. The prophets bring words often that feel like bad news at first until the good news comes. And they have these words of destruction as well as restoration. And words of con condemnation often precede words of good news. And, and the prophets' main task is to call us to remember. To remember to remember in two, in two main ways, to remember our deepest longings. What is it that we really want down deep inside? And to remember who we are. 
Who has God called us to be? And so when we talk about the Old Testament prophets, we we usually talk about them in, in two different groupings of, of Old Testament prophets. The first grouping, they're called the major prophets. Major, not meaning they're better than, but meaning they're the three most long-winded prophets. Perhaps you know a prophet like that even today. They're the, they're the three most long-winded. They're the ones that we actually know quite well, the ones we've read before throughout the year. Those are Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Isaiah being the one you likely know the best. It's the one that Jesus quotes the most, and it's just so long. These are the majors. They're the longest in both message and breadth. But for the purpose of this sermon series, as we're beginning, we decided to take a turn towards the less familiar, to turn towards that second set of prophets, which we call the minor prophets. And they're called minor not because their message is minor, but because they are more brief. They, they, they know how to get to the point. They're not as long-winded. In fact, they're they're so minor that that they've actually been all rolled up together into one scroll by the rabbis. And our our Jewish siblings in faith call this scroll the Book of the Twelve, which for us in in the biblical text is the twelve last books of the Old Testament. And so there are 12 minor prophets, each one of them like a chapter in this very short book. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Jonah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These 12 prophets are all rolled up together into one scroll called the Book of the Twelve, and each with their own tune, their own way of poetic calling us to something new, but all around that same purpose, all of them calling us to remember, calling us to remember what we really long for and to remember who we are. And so today we begin with the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And as we begin, here's here's what I'm pretty sure of. I'm pretty sure that that many, perhaps let's say most, most Christians have a prejudice about the Old Testament. They come bearing that prejudice with them when we open up the Old Testament. And one version of, of this prejudice is the idea that God, the God of the Old Testament is this God of war and revenge, while the God of the New Testament is this God of peace and this God of love. Another, another version of this prejudice is the idea that the the Old Testament is, is largely made up of prophecies of Jesus' coming. And once Jesus came, it, its use is largely to demonstrate that Jesus was a part of God's plan all along. And that's really all its use is for. And then another version of this prejudice says that the Old Testament is full of all these arcane laws and commands. That these are actually just the kind of strictures that the gospel releases us from. 
read this stuff anymore? And to some extent, there's there's a sliver of truth in all of those prejudices. That's there normally is. Which is why they're all still kind of hanging around long after they should have been put to bed. But today's reading from the prophet Hosea shows us how impoverished all of these perceptions of the Old Testament really are. We, we can get tangled up in the fact that this book, this prophet, drops the word whoredom four times in the first three verses. <laughs> You're welcome, Rita. We can get sidetracked by that word, that storyline, and this shallow attempt to disregard the, the book as a whole. But I think that actually if I was, I was going to advise an, a newcomer to Christianity in how to read the Old Testament, I might actually advise her to start not in Genesis, not in Exodus, but rather right here in Hosea. A friend of mine watched his mom died while he was just a teenager. And he shared with me among a group of other friends that one of the saddest things in his life was when his mom, knowing she was going to die, carefully organized a few things for various people in her life to find after she was gone. And for him, she she bought him a 21st birthday present and she wrote him a letter that he could open with that present that day. And she let him and his dad know where the location of that present and the letter was so that when the day would come, they would know where to go find it and they would, he would be able to open them. And the saddest part of it was that about six months before his 21st birthday, his dad's house was burglarized. And among the things that were stolen were the gift and the letter that were hidden at the, the bottom of his mother's jewelry box. And so he never got to read the letter and he never got to know what that gift was. And ever since, he's just been wondering Assuming that that letter would have explained everything, all the mystery of his mother's life, and all the hope she had for his life. Just, just imagine. Just imagine if that were your story. Just imagine that that was your story, but, but many years later, you somehow were reunited with that letter. Wouldn't you hold it reverently in two hands as if it, it blessed by this wondrous existence, its miraculous reappearance in your life after all these years? Wouldn't you have butterflies in your stomach hoping 
it wouldn't tell you a secret you wish you, you never known or just turn out to be just completely ordinary and not meaning making at all this document you had hoped it had it to be wouldn't you expect that reading it would be one of the most revealing moments of your whole life a moment when timeless wisdom and personal passion met in this one single page this one single document well, that's, friends, the state of mind we need to be in as we read these words today from the prophet Hosea. Because what, what Hosea gives us is this letter from God, this letter from God saying to Israel, this is what it's been like all these centuries to have a child like you. This is what it's been like to have a child like you. And this, this is an amazing thing in many ways. So just step, step back and reflect for a moment on the ways we talk about having children in our culture. We understand, first of all, how many people long to have children. We feel sympathetic when a friend who longs for it or for what for whatever reason can't get pregnant. We, we try to say the right thing, carefully wanting to affirm career or, or financial concerns and occasionally mumbling letters like IVF and, and words like adoption. If we feel that there's enough trust and understanding there to do so. And, and then fast forward. And, and 20 years or so later, we anticipate the good news of college, places that they're going to attend and graduations attended and proud-hearted parents not wanting to, to take credit, but, but you know, selfishly paying the bills for education and experience and a, and a start in life and, and so much to look forward to. And in between that longing and, and anticipation of, of, of children and those children becoming bright, contributing citizens, here's the question. How much do we really give folks space to identify and explain what being a parent is really like? It seems there's this awful lot of effort to show the goodness of parenthood by the, by the faultless manners of children in public or by exemplary school results or by the quality of athletic prowess or the success in convincing the grandparents that their kids are truly virtuous. But where and when do we give space to say how much a parent shouts or how much a parent weeps or how much a parent feels isolated and alone and a failure and a fool? A while ago, I was having a beer with another friend of mine and she told me what it had really been like 
with her, her teenage son. How her son lied to her. How he seemed so unmotivated and just wasted away his brain and couldn't find any drive or rhythm in school. And how he started taking various substances. And how she knew he was stealing money out of her purse. And how it felt like her son was was beyond her reach. How tremendous fun and, and good company he was like one out of five days. But how far away he seemed most of the time. And sometimes this complete demon. And so sitting there at this brewery, she's being brutally honest. And I asked her, how much do you think, how much that, how much do you think that sense of failure you feel as a parent with your son played a part in, in you and your husband splitting up now that you think back on it? And she shook her head adamantly back and forth, but but when she opened her mouth to deny it, no words came out. And this was a woman, a friend who is profoundly successful in her career, who had more professional recognition than most of us could dream of. But deep down, her experience of being a parent had unraveled every fragile and unresolved quality of her character and exposed every tiny inconsistency in her soul, leaving her with this, about the self-esteem of a mashed potato now. And this, this is the kind of story Hosea records God telling about what it was like to be Israel's parent all those years. But, it, but it's not a simple tale of woe. It comes in these, these, these four distinct parts. And I want, I want to look at those four parts with you for a moment because they give this profound shape to this story of, of Hosea. The story starts in the past and it moves into the present and, and finishes in the future and offers this model of how we might tell our own stories in a similar way. And so let's look at what God says about the past. When Israel was a child, I loved him. A tiny child can call out the deepest feelings of, of pride and protection and heart-bursting wonder and, and joy. Feel God's chest filling with emotion as you ponder these words. It, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is, is another name for the northern kingdom that split from Judah after the death of King Solomon took them up in my arms, God says. It's like an old cinecamera recording of a child's first steps. I led them with, with cords of human kindness and bands of love. 
God is making an analogy between the reins you put on a child as it's learning to teeter around on its two feet and the demonstrations of love God made to Israel that kept Israel steady on its feet in those early days. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and I fed them. You can feel God stroking Israel's soft skin and getting out that little spoon and trying to to put some liquidized food in Israel's mouth as it sits up in its high chair. What a tender scene this is. But then the picture shifts to Israel's present. And suddenly the mood changes and it's like we're at the brewery with my friend again. And she's telling me about what her son gets up to when he's supposed to be at school. And you can see God hunched forward, head in hands, saying these words. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept offering incense to idols and they kept refusing to turn to me and my people are bent on turning away from me. You can see God sitting there in that brewery, beer in hand. And God is under no illusions that turning a blind eye will make such things go away by themselves. This delinquency has consequences. The people are are already facing or are, are going to face exile and conquest and slavery and civil war and division and fractures and phobias and notions of supremacy and God is devastated to see the way the intimacy of parent and child has gotten to this terrible state and then we come to to the third picture the most poignant one of all We're given this awesome privilege of a window into the heart of God. And in that heart, we see this all-night struggle between this sober, realistic pragmatism and this passionate, wild fury and overwhelming, tender compassion. How can I give you up, Ephraim, says God? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. How many parents know what such inconsolable soul-searching feels like? But God emerges from it with, with this firm conviction. I will not execute My fierce anger, I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. This is God's present tense, as as the Old Testament most acutely describes it, torn between Wrath and mercy, knowing that mercy will cost not less than everything. And finally, 
we get this glimpse into to God and Israel's future together. God will be like a lion who will roar and God's children, Israel, will come trembling from the four corners to which they had dispersed and be reunited with one another, with their homes, with one another and with God. And the powerful will be brought low and the powerless will be lifted up and Israel will be as timid and as tentative as cooing doves in the face of the mighty roar of God. There is no question Israel's return will be God's doing. But like the prodigal son returning to the father, Israel will come back from exile and be reunited in God's home and in God's heart. And so I wonder for you today, if there is a word of hope for you in this story, I wonder if you know what it means to have a, a child or maybe another person whom you love follow a destructive, a self-destructive path which hurts themselves, hurts those around them, maybe hurts you more than they, they ever seem to have comprehended. No doubt your own positive or, or negative experience of being a child or, or a parent shapes the way you hear this story today. I wonder where you are in this story right now. Are you thinking back to the beautiful, tender times? Or maybe you're right, maybe you're right in the, in the thick of the terrible, tormented times. Or perhaps you're experiencing the sleepless nights and and restless torment of not knowing whether to follow wrath or follow mercy right now. Whether to try yet another one last chance or whether to say you've had it with them and there's no way back. I wonder if there's consolation in God's words of reunion in the future, not not a reunion maybe you can envision right now, but one that God will bring as irresistibly as a roaring lion, Hosea says. Now I want to take you back. I want to take you back to that lost letter that my friend's mother wrote when 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 he was just a teenager. See, my friend told me that he's come to believe that he has, in fact, read that letter. He didn't mean that, that the letter wasn't really stolen or that it was it miraculously appeared one day. He meant that this is that letter. Hosea is that lost letter. He's come to believe that Hosea 11 is what his mother wanted to tell him with her dying words. Not that she'd been the patient parent and he'd been her wayward child. Not that he would one day have to experience what, 
what it means to be a parent whose child breaks his heart. Not even that Hosea is is every parent's story or any of our story, none of these things. But that what matters about Hosea is precisely that it is God's story. And in that story, it turns out we're we're not the long-suffering parent. We are the destructive child. Hosea isn't a generalized picture of the woes of parenthood. It's a poem. It's a prayer. It's a promise from God that says, You're my beloved child. And you have wandered. And you have strayed, and I'm in pieces just watching it happen in front of me. I'm in pieces just watching the fires rage around you. But one day you'll be reunited with God, although you'll never know how much it costs me to make it so. My friend said that that That's what he knew his mother wanted to tell him. Not that she gave up everything for him, but that God did and still does and God always will. Those words tell him who he is. Those words get at his deepest longings. They tell him who he is and who God is. Those words tell us who we are. And who God is. And so I ask you if you wrote a last secret letter to your child or to your loved one, I wonder what you'd write in it. I know what I'd write in mine. I'd write the words of Hosea. Table.